Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello and welcome back to Brave New Teaching and welcome to another interview in our building classroom community behavior management. It's kind of a lot of different things this series. I think we're calling it classroom management, but I think if you have listened to the first couple of episodes in the series, you are catching on that to us here in the Brave New Teaching community and to our friends of the podcast who are coming on, much like our friend of the podcast, Dr. Smith, who's coming on today, classroom management, behavior management is synonymous with community. And if it's not, that means that it's probably not working. And that means that uh, we have some things that we can help with, such as today's interview. Today, we are talking to Dr. Deanna Smith who is just like one of those educators that when you sit down and you hear or you talk to this person, you go, oh, wow, A, your heart and soul are in this profession, in this vocation, and man, you can really cut through the you-know-what and just see what is best for kids. That was... That I mean, I've been a fan of Dr. Smith for a while, but like being able to talk to her and pick her brain a little bit and hear just what makes her tick as an educator and as a person, because I there's not a whole lot. I mean, just like with me, like with Amanda, there's not a whole lot of differentiation between what makes us tick as a person and what makes us tick as educators, right? Because these we're following our calling to do this thing called educating kids. And she and that shines through in everything that she says. We talk about all sorts of things. We talk about social justice. We talk about building communities in our classrooms. We talk about professional development done right. We talk about what to do as a veteran teacher. We talk about what to do as an administrator what steps you can take as a brand spanking new teacher who wants to quote unquote do things right, right? And like wants to build community organically and authentically and show your students that they all matter and that you see them. She gives some amazing tips on that that we could all follow. You don't have to be brand new to follow that. I want to read you a little bit of her bio because it just like you are in for a treat today, friends. Uh, so we are talking today to Dr. Deanna Smith. Deanna is a former teacher, instructional coach, and school leader. Before transitioning into leadership, Deanna taught intervention, elementary and middle school math and science. As a student and teacher, Deanna saw how systemic racism negatively impacted both adults and kids. This experience set Deanna 
Tiana on a journey to learn more about how teachers can liberate their students' potential through anti-racist practices. Diana is dedicated to her own learning as well and recently completed her doctorate in education from Loyola Marymount University. We got to give her a little like, yay, rah, rah, you're a doctor. That's so cool. You're so much cooler than us <laughs> situation. It was very fun when we started recording. You know what? I need to stop so that you all can just hear the genius that is Dr. Deanna Smith. And we cannot wait to hear all of the gems that you are taking away from today's episode, make sure that you head to our show notes at bravenewteaching.com and download our workbook for this series of episodes. It will be there for you to help you kind of keep track of your notes. And it just groups all the episodes that talk about what we're talking about today, which is building authentic and organic community in a class so that you can really see a student and all of these practices can benefit everybody. So without any further ado, enjoy today's interview with Dr. Deanna Smith. And first, cue the music. You're listening to Brave New Teaching, and we are so much more than a podcast. We give teachers the inspiration, support, and tools to challenge the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a former English teacher from Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm a teacher from Southern California. Join us at bravenewteaching.com to find out more about our courses, festivals and get every episode's show notes. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. All right, Brave New Teaching community, I would like to give a big, huge welcome to the podcast to Deanna Smith, who is joining us today to talk about all sorts of things, classroom management, and to share her zone of genius and expertise. And we could not be happier to be chatting today. Welcome to the podcast, Deanna. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to jump into this conversation with y'all today. So Amanda was actually the first one that was like, when we started talking about having a series on classroom management, we were like, but really, like, what does that look like? And by now, listeners, you've heard a couple of different episodes. If you haven't, pause us, jump back, or just keep listening. You can kind of listen in any order that you would like to. Uh, But we were talking about like, really, classroom management can get really gimmicky and really like strategy-based where it's kind of like flash-in-the-pan strategy. But really, when we start talking about what we mean by classroom management, it's more community and it's more deeply entrenched in an instructional practice and just a teaching practice in general and the way that you interact with everybody on campus. And she goes, I know exactly who we need to talk to. And then she fangirled for a solid like hour and was like, oh, and she said this on her Instagram. And Deanna said this. And 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 so then when we got in contact with you, Amanda was very excited. So we I were am. like, yeah, I mean, I am too. I just wanted you to know, Deanna, that she fangirled the oh, heck out of you. you so much. <laughs> Deanna, we kind of shared a little bit about your story in the intro, but could you go ahead and give your own introduction to yourself, your work, what you've been doing, and then we'll kind of dig in more to classroom management and some misconceptions around how all that goes down in the classroom. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm Deanna, officially Dr. Smith now too, which you can see. Congratulations. That is so exciting. (laughs) And I'm from Spokane, Washington, small town where Rachel Dolezal was. So if that gives you a little context for what the city is like. Um, And I was the only person of color in an all white school for most of my life. I went to PWIs thrice, three times for my undergrad, master's and doctorate. So I've just been very deeply impacted on a personal level by, you know, white supremacy culture and education and racism and systemic racism. And so it was really my personal experience that propelled me to want to get into education. I just wanted to always be the teacher that I never had. I never had a black teacher. I never, still to this day, I've never had a black woman as my teacher. So I really wanted to be that person for my students and I really started off like a lot of us did with my access point was culturally relevant or culturally responsive teaching. And then it kind of crescendoed, right? And we all crescendoed along with it with kind of the apex happening in 2020 with just when the world cracked wide open and we were all just more deeply aware of how deep um, systemic oppression really is and those roots. And so it kind of culminated in me getting invested in anti-racist teaching. And along that way, you know, I, I taught 
intervention. I taught fifth grade. I taught middle school math and science. And I just had just a genuine love for teaching. And so because of that love, I, you know, kind of moved up the ladder. I think a lot of teachers, we like move up thinking that we're going to enjoy it, but I, I really didn't. I would much prefer to be in a classroom, to be honest with you. But I did, you know, I, I kind of fell into that classic trap of kind of instructional coach. And then I was a DEI director and then I went to admin. But really along the way, I started talking to teachers across the country and using social media as a place of community building and people who are like, like-minded and wanted to do this work and were excited about it. So that's how kind of Deanna Smith Consulting and my Instagram came to be. And when I'm not doing that, which I mean, I, it's like no days off for me because I'm I, this is just who I am as a person. But when I'm not actively You're in good advocating. company. Yeah, we're the same. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not actively advocating. Um, I'm a big Beyonce fan. So love Beyonce. I uh, love baking, hiking and exploring. And I've lived in California for like 10 years now. So just, you know, California vibes. You kind of become a beach girl, that kind of thing. So that's um, that's a little bit about me. Oh, that's a vibe I don't yet understand. But she Marie keeps telling me yeah. to get on board with it because it's How a real thing. It? And I'm like, <laughs> landlocked Illinoisan over here for life. Oh, and I'm gosh. like, it's not real to have a beach life. This isn't real. <laughs> well, and then she's like, you've really got to get out of California. There's earthquakes there. And I'm looking at yeah. her like, that's what you're latching onto. It's the earthquakes. <laughs> and wildfires. It's very wow, dangerous sorry. place to live. Yes. Yeah, it's a very dangerous place to live. This yes, is what she yes, tells me true. all the time. And I'm like, oh, I'm so okay. okay. Well, Deanna, can I can I have Deanna just do one thing really quick? Yeah, so yes, gonna, please. We're going to talk in this episode a lot about ABAR. Can you define yeah. that for our audience? Because I don't think we're going to use the full term every time yeah. um, so that yeah. they're kind of like ready to flex with us with some of that terminology. Yeah. So I think ABAR is like it, it encompasses anti-racism and um, anti-bias, right? And those things are not like, it's kind of a Venn diagram. So anti-bias means like examining the biases that we're all programmed into having. Everyone has biases. And then anti-racist kind of takes it a little bit step further, which is actively dismantling systemic racism in the United States and specifically in this context of education. So I think like the two are related, but not exactly the same. But when we say ABAR, it kind of like, broadly encompasses everything to that work. I think it is a similar term to DEI, if you're familiar with DEI, uh, diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. So it's kind of in that same field. And to be honest with you, it kind of gets to be alphabet soup on a lot of things people obsess over the right terms. All but right. for me, it's like it, the work is really under the, the broader banner of right, like educational justice. And these are kind of like prongs that go underneath it, if that makes sense. So for listeners, we are going to have all of this stuff in the show notes. Don't forget, like if you ever want clarification and if we get kind of carried away and you're like, what's going on here? Um, don't forget to head to our show notes. We will have all of Deanna's information, contact information, and a little glossary of some of the things that we go over and, and you know, all the best hits from our interview. So don't forget that that's there for you. Yeah. Oh, and I think it's really important too, to have somebody who really knows what you're talking about to be able to define and to like talk about some of these terms that, like you said, do become alphabet soup, especially if it's, if we're talking to educators and a lot of our audiences, educators who are on teacher social media and are Mm. extremely, either extremely involved or seeking out more information, it's easy to get confused. It's easy to have misinformation. It's easy for things to get all jumbled together. And so thank you for like taking a minute to define all of that. It just, it's a good idea to hear good info. And it's so like, it's important. And then sometimes it's not important because you don't want to get too caught up in it. But then at the end, like it is kind of important because (laughs) diversity is not the same as anti-racism. So this is something that, Amanda, you probably heard me go on this a million times on my Instagram because I'm so passionate about it. But when we say like diversity, diversity is a mixture of different, you know, expressions of what it means to be a human being. That is not the same as undoing systemic racism in education. So I think like it's important, um, but I don't want people to get too caught up in it, but it is good to push yourself, right. To hold yourself accountable to like doing all of those things and not just starting with diversity and ending there. Right. Well, and like, I mean, in all of education, including what we're talking about today, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen in order for further learning to progress. And so, 
it's good to go back to like, let's define what we're really talking about. Let's redefine what we're talking about. Let's talk about the application of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So thank you. And actually, I know that we were going to talk about this a little bit later, but I feel like this is a good moment. In your consulting, what sorts of work do you do with schools? And then we're going to jump into, I think, some nitty gritty of your ideas in classroom management. What, like, what does your consulting service look like on a general day? Like, what do you do with a school? Yeah, I love that. So I have a couple of different ways that schools can work with me. The most comprehensive is like a partnership or what I would call like a VIP day. So when I'm in partnership with schools, we are doing the deep systemic work where that's like, I'm looking at your bell schedule. I'm looking at your budget. I'm looking, I'm meeting with school leaders. I'm doing virtual or in-person observations. We're talking about like curriculums and structures and that that's like the the high end of of what I do, but it's the most impactful because mm-hmm. so so often we get caught up in this like, can you give me a teacher workshop? And I definitely do teacher workshops too. But teaching teachers about anti racist behavior management is not the same as meeting with the school leader and being like, here's where anti blackness is showing up in your policies, and mm-hmm. here's where you know your school is not a place where your students with learning difference can thrive, and really like. A, there's some overlap there. And B, how can we like dismantle and unpack that? So that's kind of like the higher level where it's really looking to say like, this is about to become a school that is joyful, that is just where we're liberating students' potential. So that's kind of like the deeper work. Other principals want to work with me and they just want like a somebody to talk to, almost like a consultant, because as a former school leader, you make so many decisions during the day. And that's where I see the most inequity, right? It's those snap decisions. It's how are we going to handle this? Who's getting expelled? Who's getting hired? Who's getting fired? Yeah. All those questions. So sometimes people just want to like an eye and somebody who like has a critical understanding of these things to say like, this isn't the best practice or like, let's unpack why you think that this student should be suspended, but this student was expelled. So it's right. kind of yeah. questions. So the administration is saying, tell me what I'm not seeing here. And you're exactly. like, okay. Yeah. And yeah, you're able to right. be, I mean, by many means impartial in that you don't specifically know those kids, but you can look at mm-hmm. it from a bird's eye to say, that's, yeah, I know that those sorts of relationships happen a lot in corporate leadership. I only they know do, that because yeah. I have a cousin who works mm-hmm. in corporate and tells me about all these things. And I go, huh, I wonder that? if that happens in education. And now you're telling <laughs> me it does. And that, yeah, like, more. Oh, yeah. You definitely need to do it more, but it does happen. And like, so really, you know, the my ideal, like the top tier package is I'm working with leaders, systems, teachers, students, and then the families too. I have a family uh-huh. workshop that I do because a lot of folks are so focused on like, how can we bring families in? But they're not looking at it from the family's perspective. And mm-hmm. so I work with families to kind of grease those wheels between schools. And then like the mid tier is, you know, maybe three teacher training sessions or a beginning of the year PD is another one that I love to do. And I'm working a lot heavily with teachers and then maybe a couple meetings with administrators and then the lowest tier, which is still impactful, but I usually try to help people scale is I'm coming in doing a teacher workshop or observing. I love to observe and give feedback because see people come in to observe classrooms and a lot of times their protocol, like what they're looking for has nothing to do with anti-racism or even cultural responsiveness. Their metrics are totally different. So I have my own metrics that I like teach people about like, hey, this is what it looks like to run a classroom in a way that liberates black and brown students potential and brings also, you know, your students that are not of color into that And so I use that kind of rubric and work with people on that. So it really depends, but it's very customizable because every school is so different. Like I was going to say, it has to be, right? Yeah. (laughs) I work with like schools where families are paying like $40,000 a year. And then I work with schools where, you know, the kids are system involved and, you know, a lot of the kids are trans, like we have a lot of houselessness, especially if I work with a school here in LA. So it is truly like the gambit of everything that you could imagine. Public, charter, private, Catholic, you know, everything. Oh my gosh. That's, that is incredible. And I, I totally can empathize with that idea of a workshop being helpful, but not all the work. I mean, it's, it's how many times have I seen, you know, one, a one-stop shop workshop, but then the mm-hmm. admin doesn't carry that work forward or they, they kind of use you yeah. as a look what I did and check off the box. And I know, I know you from watching you and, and we've got to know each other a little bit, but I think that's gotta be like 
hard for you too, is that you don't want to be used in a way that, that that's, that's like counterintuitive to what you're trying to do. Right. And that's what I always say. Like, I don't, I don't work with every single school that comes my way because some schools are really trying to, again, check off a box. They want to say like this happened. But for me, I really push to work with the school leaders because I've also, I've been a teacher. So I've been on the receiving end of having somebody come in and be like, here's all these things that you need to do. And then, you know, it's just not sustainable because either the leadership isn't equally yoked and equally invested, or a lot of the stuff that I talk about, an anti-racist classroom is one thing, but it's it's going to work best in an anti-racist school. So yeah. if you're if the school is not willing to like give a little, or you know, when I talk about certain systems or practices, and then your admin doesn't back you up, I, I you know, I'm mm-hmm. not personally there, so I can only help you so much. Oh. So I need the principals and stuff to like also be be in that work too. And it's an overhaul. It's a mm-hmm. it's a big big overhaul shift, and like something that we've talked about many times on the podcast is that we have seen, so I'm going into my 16th year of teaching. Amanda has been in the classroom. She's out of the classroom now, but was in the classroom for just about as long as me. Like we've been around the block a few times to also have that like healthy dose of skepticism of like, okay, but when is the pendulum swinging the other way? And you're like, yeah, but this isn't (laughs) like, this isn't that right? anti-bias and anti-racist and DEI and like just teaching humans in a way that is being better humans and creating systems where, like you said, all of our kids get to shine and unlock that potential is not a pendulum swing. It's it's doing better. You know better and you do better and finding out even more. Brave new teaching listeners, I have to just quickly stop in and check on you. How are you doing? Are you ready for back to school? I want you to remember that there's so much more about back to school than getting your shopping list taken care of. If you're scrambling in your head and losing sleep about organizing your first 10 days, your first two weeks, your first couple of days, I want you to know that I've been working so hard all summer to bring you a course that will bring you peace, purpose, and a sense of direction for your entire semester. My brand new course, The First 10 Days, is ready for you. And I am so anxious to get it into your hands. I want to share, first of all, a quick testimonial from a teacher friend of mine who's already gone through it and what she's experiencing. Take a listen. Hey, Amanda, I wanted to let you know that I purchased your first 10 days and I am only on day two. I just got done watching day two video and I absolutely love the content. Like, this is so, so good. I am so excited to go back to school. I'm taking all sorts of notes. I am re-watching the videos. I'm really just, like, taking my time going through each video and the resources that you are providing. Um, I needed this. I told you I'm preparing for year number 16 of teaching, and... This is so, so good. Whether you're preparing for year 16 or year one, I'm here to walk alongside you if you're feeling a little bit lost. Re-entering the classroom this year is going to be tough, but going in with clarity, purpose, and a real sense of where everything is headed, you will feel confident and that confidence will transcend into everything you do in building the classroom community that you and your students deserve. I hope I can help you stop by the show notes today to check out and see more of how the first 10 days can support you getting ready for back to school. Back to the show. So I feel like a classroom can be a microcosm for what you're talking about at a school level. When you're talking about one-off or maybe even two-off teacher trainings, that could be equated to the kind of like I started saying at the beginning here, one off, maybe two off little activities that are like mm-hmm. classroom management, bondy sorts of things that then never actually carry through mm-hmm. when it comes to creating a community in like the smaller, did I, did it work? 
did the metaphor, it is it working? It's I'll there, there. I'm good there. You're both either just nodding very nicely or it worked. Um, <laughs> You'll never know. You'll never know. Uh-uh. And I'm going to go with it worked. But like, I feel like this kind of does lead us into our next question is in your experience, how is the term or the idea of classroom management or behavior management or however you want to look at it evolved over time through your uh, educational experience? Yeah. So my personal uh, perspective on it, mm-hmm. I think- Please. So <laughs> I, and I say, I try to say this a lot on my Instagram because y'all, it's really when you know better, you do better. Because if you talk to my students in my first year of teaching, they would be like, Miss Smith did all of these things that she's telling you not to do. And I 100%, <laughs> like, I'm just going to keep it real. I 100% did. And it was because of a combination of factors. Like first, as a woman of color, I know firsthand what it takes to survive the education industrial complex, right? So from my own personal experience, I know that in in the Black community, we have a saying, you have to do everything twice as good to get half as far. So as a student, I was the most on-point student. I never skipped a class. Even in college, I never skipped a class. One, because I'm the only Black person in the class. So honey, they notice when I'm not in the class, right? (laughs) They know, yeah. Like We have to, as you know, to, to be able to, as a first-generation college student, all this stuff, I really had to be super on point. So that's what I wanted for my students because from my perspective, I experienced success. I got a full ride. I did all these things. I got the degrees. And I wanted that for my kids. And I'm like, y'all, you have to really know. You have to know these racist rules better than anybody, and you have to follow these racist rules. You have to allow yourself to be controlled. And so as a teacher, that's what a lot of my actions were informed by. Like, hey, you can't be caught slipping. You have to be perfect. You have to be twice as good as all the white students because the the stakes are so much higher for you. So I was, you know, I didn't have a clip chart, but I definitely used points. I used all kinds of systems that I would never recommend. And it was a lot about control. And I was success. And the crazy part is I was very successful at it. Like I was the person that got all the behavior kids. I got an award in my little, um, in my little district, my local district, for, you know, the best like classroom management at the assemblies, honey, Miss Miss class, like you don't even understand, like my kids were pristine (laughs) all of the time. And so that was, and that's honestly how I got promoted is because everybody was like, wow, like Deanna has these kids on lock. But that wasn't like it worked, but that was not the way to do that. Like I I definitely Mm -hmm. understood that like, this is not, this is not doing what I wanted to do because yeah, my kids were well-behaved, but like at what cost? Like what, but what did I, you know, I sucked the joy out of this like 10 year old and now it like only knows how to sit quietly, sit and star. Like, is that really what I got into this career to do? So I have, to- I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you have like early on in career, your career, what you're talking about? Was there like a voice in your head going, what am I doing? Or, or oh yeah. was it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, cause I, the reason I asked that is because I bet because I had a similar experience in that I had the moment of, what am I doing? At various points in our careers, I think that a lot of our fellow educators out there go, this is what I've been taught to do. This is what I've had modeled for me. This yep. is what how I learned. This is everything I've ever experienced. And I know it's working, but there's a nag that's going on that I can't yep. quite pinpoint. And I don't know that I... Not that I don't have the time to stop and examine my own practices, but it's more like I'm unwilling to take the time to cut other things out to stop and examine my yep. own practices. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Well, and, I'm and so sorry interrupting. Right? Right. So for uh, me, it's like, what if I do, what if I stop being like that person? Like, am I going to get fired? Am I going to get bad reviews? Like, am I going to embarrass myself? Because remember, I like, I started teaching when I was 21 years old, right? So I'm also mm-hmm. young. I'm like, I feel very vulnerable in this position. So I was scared to let a lot of that go because it was working because I was teaching like a champion. That's the book that they had us read. And that's oh, what yeah. all that I got. Mm-hmm. I, I took a little, I took a culturally responsive teaching class. It was, it did not teach me any, I, I, my first teaching job was in East Oakland, California. I was not prepared in any way, shape or form. <laughs> so I just did what, you know, I thought I should do. But I knew like that's not what I wanted for myself. That's not what I wanted for my students. That's not what I would want for if I ever had a kid. I wouldn't want it to be like that. And it really changed too when I started going to these all white schools. So we would go on school tours and see other schools. And I went to these like really highly resourced. Remember, this is the the Bay Area. So I'm going like Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. where like Apple employees kids go. And these kids are like 
creating all day and they have like maker spaces and it's so chill and zen and they have all this flexible seating. And I'm like, so how come my kids deserve this regimented, strict environment and Apple over here is like singing Kumbaya and doing meditation for 45 minutes a day. And somehow they still get higher test scores. Like I, it was right. just like, this isn't, you know, this isn't the right way to do this. So I just really had to honestly decolonize my own mind and just totally rethink and like radically reevaluate. Like what does, what is it even classroom management? Do I want to manage my classroom or do I want a classroom community? Like, is that what I want to be? Am I, am I a manager? Like, that's not what I should be doing anyway. That even the term itself is terrible. So I really yeah. had to think of like, no, I want like joyful, like communities of care in my classroom where like we lovingly call each other in and hold each other accountable and we all feel safe. And like, we learn together. Doesn't that sound much better than like managing. Right. So I think that was kind of like my own journey that I had to go on. And that's why I'm so passionate about it, because I'm not saying that, you know, you're bad or you're wrong or you're a terrible teacher for doing all of these things, because I did all of those things. And I understand that it works. And I understand that it's probably easier than what I'm talking about. But what I also know is when you know better, you do better. And now that we know better, now that we know that we don't have to do it that way, we have to do better. I would love to kind of have you, you touched very quickly on this, the clip charts, teach like a champion. Are there like one or two, maybe those two specifically, or a couple other ones that are some of these practices that have been going around for a long time, but people online are saying, wait, why, why shouldn't I be doing that? Or why is this, you know, a practice that's perpetuating some of this systemic mm-hmm. racism? What, what are a couple of examples of those actual classroom management practices that we can share with the audience right now? Yeah, I think the clip chart is a big one or just anything that's like a highly visual, like merit-based assigning point value to like a person, I think is something that we need to start moving away from. I understand, like I get it. Some schools require you to use it. And I understand that there are like some ways that you could tweak it, but we have to move away from that. Another thing that I always get flack for And I used to be the queen of it. I used to be the queen of taking away recess, but we have to move away from taking away recess. Like, it doesn't really make sense. If we start to think of, like, play as something that kids are entitled to because they're children, like, does it really make sense? Like, can you take away something that's a right that you're entitled to? I don't think so. So I think, like, reframing how we think about recess is important as well. And that translates to secondary, too, because, like, (laughs) so I teach mostly juniors and seniors. So it's not recess, but there are moments where I'm like, you guys need to go on a walk. I I like from like an in the in the most simplistic form, like I need a minute, too. And I'm a person. So like you need to go on your walk, which is your recess right now. Mm -hmm. I will see you in three minutes. Like it's it's different at the different, you know, age appropriateness. But like what you're saying, why would you take that away from? Children, obviously their behavior, if their behavior is that bad, then that probably dictates that they need a break. And then also, right. why would you do that to yourself? Like as a teacher, yeah. like, no, it's okay. I need a minute. Yeah. Bored. Like I, I got so tired of being in during their recess. I'm like, now why am I in here? Because <laughs> like I want some right. fun. I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? And it really, I understand like, it, it's really what you do with it. So like there are times when during recess, you need, something needs to happen And that kid might not have that recess for that day. But I'm talking about habitual, you know, day in and day out, recess, 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 recess. That's something that just like I had to let go of that because it it, it was more about my ego, right? It was more about like, you messed up my time. I'm taking your time. And I'm like, why am I beefing with a 10-year-old? Like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Like, first of all, first of all, you're a child. And I have to like step back from that. And it's not about my, this isn't my time. This is a classroom community. Like, what am I talking about? So that's another one that I think we really, really have to move away from. And I just got, you know, people were upset with me about this last week about kicking the kids out of class. And I just really feel as somebody who has been on the other side of the receiving and being in the office, Kicking these kids out of class day in and day in and day, it's not doing what you think it's doing. Now, there are exceptions. Like a kid is a danger to themselves and others. Yes, take a walk, take a lap. The kid needs a break, you need a break, take a lap. But I'm talking about the kid that I see in the office multiple times a week, multiple times a week. Like if you're a danger to yourself and others multiple times a week, then that's telling me that there's something going on about the climate. 
So yeah. we're, we're so obsessed with these, you know, with what we see that's visible, which is the behavior. Let's get to the root of the behavior. Let's talk about where that, what is the antecedent to that behavior? So for me, those types of solutions are, I'm not going to say never have a place, but those are things that we need to move away from. Well, because to your point, like that child is having needs that are not being met, whether it's at school or at home or in general, that child is having their needs go unmet and it, and it's actually like further damaging the more that it's like, go to the office. Yeah. Behavior is, it's just feedback. Exactly. Exactly. What's going on? Like, I'm like, think of a baby, a baby cries. They don't have any way of communicating with you what's going on. That's how they're letting you know. Uh, sir, who's cutting up over here, that's how he's letting you know. That's your feedback. So, you know, you got to take yourself out of it. I think so much of it is teachers, we take it personally and it's hard because we're overworked. And that's why I work with administrators too, because mm-hmm. don't think that I'm just telling teachers what they should and should not be doing. No, I'm also saying and acknowledging that the school climate is going to either facilitate this for you or make it really, really hard to, for you to do what I'm talking about. So that's why I love working with admins too, because I do get it. Teachers also need a break, but we all have to just like rehumanize every person in that in that experience. It's a very humbling experience mm-hmm. too, to sit back and examine your clip chart strategy, examine your, I used to have to flip a card. I will never forget Poor Chase in my first grade class who flipped a card every day, at least once or twice. I mean, but that, and that stays in a kid's mind and that can be very damaging, but, and like what you're talking about of examining your own practices is so scary. I I guess it's got to be very scary because you look back and you go, have I been hurting kids or whatever, whatever it is that goes through an educator's head. And it's so necessary that humbling experience of examining your own practices to know better, do better. Yes. We, um, we're going to keep, we're going to kind of keep going on this, this path because we're in this series really kind of thinking about just classroom community and especially establishing a lot of that at the beginning of the year. And so I know teachers are, are wondering the difference between rules and expectations. And I have one rule, it's respect. And like, there are, everyone needs to go on their own journey, figure out their own things. But I'm wondering about anything in particular that teachers should like think about before they even make a misstep. Like I'm thinking about things like slant um, and other things of that nature of like the way that I, I come out and I say, this is how my classroom runs. Are there, Mm -hmm. are there practices like that? And I'm thinking, I guess these are kind of overlapping with the teach, teach like a champion type of mindset, things that we should already kind of have red flags up about before we start the school year. Yeah. Anything that's focused on control and not community, that's a red flag for me. You have to think about, am I trying to control or am I trying to build a community? And it's hard because we do, this is, and you know, y'all, y'all already know, this is how I feel about the United States in general. We are so focused on like control. We don't think about like, are we in community with people? So that's how I think you should start. Like I'm trying to build a community of learners. What would I like? Okay. Like think about yourself. For me personally, as a neurodivergent, slant is just not going to happen for me. So why I was on my kids about that for years, I'll never know. But that's just not, that doesn't make it a lot of sense, right? Well, you guys um, tell me what slant is. I can't remember. Oh, um, sitting up, <laughs> listening, asking and answering questions, nothing in your hands, tracking the speaker. Oh. Like about like how you're supposed to sit in your desk uh, and yeah. watch the, you know, be part of class. Yeah. Okay. People Hopefully I'm not the only one who forgot that. Okay. It. Yeah. 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 And then and the other thing I like to think about is like a, a framework is, are you focused on punishment or are you thinking about consequences? Because uh-huh. a consequence makes a lot of sense, right? Hey, Hey chief, you know, you did this, you, this is what's going to happen. That's not a, that's not a great way to do that. So we have to do X, Y, and Z. A punishment is I am upset that you did that. And I want you to feel a certain type of way about what you did. We don't need to punish our kids, right? Again, it's a lot of it is about the teacher ego and how we're feeling. And that's why whenever I do a course or anything, I start with the teacher and the internal work. And, you know, to take it even a step further, there is no checklist. There is no, let me just clarify that. There is no checklist. There is no system. There is no, there is nothing that you can do. We have to let go of our obsession of like methods and, and checklists because that's not what it is. If you are a person who has an anti-racist mindset, it oozes out of you and everything that you do. 
you will not be able to just check it off. It should be almost hard to put into words what you're doing, right? So that's why it has to start with your mindset. So before you go make a rule or set up a classroom or anything like that, take some time with yourself. What are you still holding on to? What are your triggers? What were you taught respect looks like? How do you react when you feel like a kid doesn't respect you? What makes you, you know, what takes you from one to 10? What, what are those types of students? You have to be so aware of that because when you're kicking kids out and you're taking kids recess, a lot of times it's the teachers that are struggling with a particular behavior with a particular student that's triggering them in some way, right? It's not just like, it's usually not just a, a kid that they have a really good relationship with that just made one honest mistake. It's usually kind of, you've gotten to a toxic cycle with a couple of your mm-hmm. students. So that internal work that's where you got to start before you like even set foot in the school building from my perspective. I agree a hundred percent because it's irresponsible to go into a setting where you're in charge of other people's babies and not have your, I mean, we all have our days, we all have our seasons of life, but it's what you're talking about is examining yourself and looking at this is, you know, formative experiences for other human beings. And I have a lot of sway over that as the teacher standing up in front of a classroom. Therefore, it is my human responsibility to examine my own triggers, my own biases, my own practices that maybe I can do better. Yes. Well, we talked about this a few episodes ago. And I think, Deanna, like at the high school level, one of the things beyond like, so once you've done that, that work, I think we then also have this struggle where a lot of teachers are lone wolfing it. They're taking on, right, all of these. If, if you're having a particular struggle with a student, we feel like, we're completely isolated when really you share this student with six or seven other teachers, their counselor, the Dean, and we don't always have our schools set up so that we can work together with a student and with solving problems. And I think that that's one thing that we really wanted to talk about in that collaboration series was this is another consequence of Mm -hmm. shutting your door and doing your thing is one, you might not even be in touch with your own biases and issues. And two, when there are problems, you shouldn't be solving them all by yourself when there's a whole school community there. And I mean, that's, that's another huge part of the problem is trying to do it by themselves. And high school behavior issues are sometimes very, very scary and difficult. Again, we shouldn't be solving those alone. Yeah. And, and people don't realize how much your, your culture plays into how you handle behavior. A lot of folks think that they don't, especially white folks think that they don't have a culture, but that's just not true. You have a very defined culture and part of popular American culture is that individualism. And that's Mm -hmm. why people close their doors because they're not thinking about a community. That's why you feel like I have to like solve this by myself. And that also a big part of American culture is personal responsibility. That's why we hyper-focus on punishments, right? And less on communities. So I think like understanding that your culture, your background, your experiences informs how you move in the classroom is going to help you position yourself to be able to not only like manage behavior, right? But to actualize a community of learners, because that's what we're trying to get to. So mm-hmm. it's so so critical to, to take those steps back. And a study that I was recently that I just read was talking about how the most common infraction, right, that teachers cite kids for is disrespect. And that's so problematic, because what is respect? Yeah, what does that even mean? (laughs) Right, exactly. Like you, if you grew up in certain cultures, it's respectful to like look someone in the eye. Others, it's not. You like, for for example, um, you know, in my my family and a lot of Black American culture, it's not impolite to interrupt somebody. It's like a collab, like we collaboratively make sentences together as opposed to taking turns listening. So it's a perfect example of where a kid could be in a classroom, think that they're just vibing, having a conversation like, yeah, and another thing, right? And they get in trouble for disrespecting because they're talking over the teacher. So it's it's little things like that that I need folks to understand. Your your individual actions on a really, really micro level represent culture, represent you know, these very complex webs that we have with each other as human beings on a macro level. So understanding like where you are situated and all of that is going to help you and inform your practice much more than something that is just focused on monitoring behavior, like even like a class dojo, right? Or some sort of point system, which is easier granted, but that doesn't lead you to that community that you want to be creating. Well, and I think the thing that I keep 
replaying in my head too is Amanda, I think you said once you've done that work and I have to push back a little bit on you, my friend, like once you've done the work of reflection, I think that it's ongoing. I think Mm -hmm. that it's, it has to be continual and it has to be, I just, I mean, if, even if you just think about like in a completely different like realm, a mental health journey, right? Mm. Because I've been on my own mental health journey. I have our listeners know, but I have wicked anxiety and I've had bouts with depression and it's not like, and now I'm better. Like it's, it's ongoing. And in the same way as learning what respect means in different cultures and understanding that that respect, even from a different culture is going to differ from family to family and from group to group. And that is such a nebulous and yet simple idea that then within our classrooms, a diverse population means that it's it's taking in everybody's ideas and just being responsive to it. Like, I'm never going to know everything, but I need yeah. to understand that I'm never going to know everything. And so I always, I, the teacher and myself, always need to keep trying to learn. And that's not easy. Yeah. It's it's a practice. Yeah. And that that's a misconception that a lot of teachers have. Like, I don't know if you saw on Edutopia, they did this survey um, in 2021, and something like 62% of teachers said that they were anti-racist. I was what? like, what? Sure about that? Is- yeah. <laughs> Respectfully, I disagree because there's yeah. no way, like, what are we talking about? We would not be seeing the outcomes that we're seeing if that was even close to true. So, like, there are so many, like, I can recommend plenty of books, but after you read one that doesn't make you anti-racist, even I am in the pursuit of anti-racism, but I would never come into any space and be like... I'm done. You know what I mean? I know what I need to know, right? Exactly. It's a continuous journey. And I encourage people to fall in love with the journey. The journey doesn't have to just be arduous. And that's sometimes white folks get afraid of this work because they think it's going to make them feel like negative or just feel bad about being white. And that's like such a small part of it. It's not just about like unlearning all of the bad things. It's about learning how to cultivate joy. It's about learning how to celebrate other cultures, not accept, not tolerate, but celebrate other people. It's it's about, you know, that about learning, you know, to love, to love to learn and like learning what it means to radically love your students in a way that sees them as human beings and rejects the dehumanizing structures that we have all through education. So like, it could be fun, like it, it, but I encourage you all to fall in love with the journey and the process of doing that because it is a lifelong journey. I can't agree with you more. And I think my, I think you're right, Marie. And I, I definitely didn't mean that we would be done, but I think my, my personality maybe have was kind of driving that is that I like to start things on my own, but then bring in, right? Yeah. Like, I, I think that that's, I, I think we just need to figure out, like, we need to get on the journey. Is, yeah, no, is Amanda, like, I right. knew what you meant, but I wanted to make sure that we made it abundantly because oh. I speak Amanda, right? Like I speak Amanda, but I wanted to make it clear that you meant the beginning uh, that, that you have like, right, you're seeking out information and you are seeking out understanding and you're seeking out other people and their information and their understanding to create an ongoing process of learning. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm super not defensive about it, but I am like overly and I was very passionate about it in our collaboration episode. Like I'm just I spent a long time lone wolfing it and regret it. I mean, mm-hmm. it caused that caused a lot of problems and unlearning like, like Deanna said, like that was cultural for me was that I am the problem solver. I take it all on my shoulders. And I, I just, I've heard that from so many teachers that feel like they're in it alone. They're all by themselves. And like this journey should be a shared one, especially at a school. Um, and, and like you said, that that's why you go in and work with principals and whole buildings and, um, trying to do this by yourself can be very, very difficult and so on. But like, with that said, I'm, I'm turning a tiny little bit because I think it's really important to talk to, especially, Diana. we have a lot of middle school and high school teachers listening, and they have reported back, Marie has reported back, um, that, there are, yeah. <laughs> that there are a lot of struggles in two realms. Like one of these is students experiencing microaggressions between one another, mm-hmm. and then also microaggressions occurring between teachers and students. And you yeah. speak about this a lot and very eloquently. And I think it would be really great to hear from you about just what that looks like and maybe how to intervene or how to reflect if that's the teacher um, and what some of those next steps might be when that's happening in the classroom. Yeah. 
I think that my number one advice for it, even if it seems like totally out of the ballpark, if a student is communicating to you that you have been racist or you have microaggressed them in some way, the first thing you have to do is to listen. And it, and I don't care if you are a person of color and maybe you're just white passing or if your great grandmother you know, was, came over here from Sicily, or if you have a master's degree in urban education or your favorite movie is Black Panther, it does not matter. You have to listen. I see so many teachers that are just like, and he said that I was being racist and I was shocked. And my first question is, well, were you? Like, I don't know, right? You have to accept that it's possible. It is absolutely possible. Me as a Black woman, I can say something that's microaggressive towards my students. Anybody could do it. And so, I encourage you to, like, when you hear something like that, notice how your body reacts, like notice, acknowledge it, and then like process it on your own. It doesn't become the kid's job to process that with you. And I think so much of this just goes back to mindfulness. Like I'm a huge believer in mindfulness because just like notice how that lands with you because so many times we get defensive, we go from zero to a hundred and it's really hard and we get escalated. And then we're trying to deescalate a student and we're escalated, right? An escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child under any circumstances. So it's important to sit with that and do your own your own work and reflection. And I think that like we have to we have to stop being so afraid that we're part of the problem because to be honest with you, we all are. We're all swimming in the toxic water. It, we're we're all like the water is toxic. The air we breathe is toxic. We are all breathing in more than four hundred years of systemic racism, oppression you know, like anti everything. Right. So you have to understand that, like, in a lot of ways, we are part of the problem. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we, you know, we have to just be OK with that, but we have to be OK when that's called out. So I think that's critical. I think especially with older high school students and teachers, I see a lot of like putting the emotional and like the the labor on kids. And I would really caution folks to like think more critically about that, because it's not a student of color's job to absolve you of your white guilt. And so you have to work through that on your own. That's that's time for you to take. <laughs> it's not really on the kids. And now with social media and just the way that kids are and the way that a lot of teachers are, they are teaching us so much and they are ahead of us on the curve on so many things. So that's a good thing. And it's a bad thing, because once again, what I hear from black and brown students in high school is, yeah, we had to teach the, you know, our white teacher that Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. And I'm like, oh, uh, I need I need you to be better. Right. Um, So I think a lot of it has to do with taking a step back and doing your own work. When it comes to microaggressions between students, you have to remember students, black, brown, white, everything, they're acting out and they're echoing and they're negotiating this awakened hyper understanding and awareness of race. When you come into adolescence, you're never more aware of Mm -hmm. your subject position, right? And things that are salient and not salient. And they're negotiating that. And they've got TikTok. And they've got all these other things that are influencing that, right? So they're just, they're almost playing it out. So you have to understand that some of that is like figuring out where the limits and boundaries are, but you have to make sure that that can be done in a way that doesn't cause harm. The number one thing that I see is schools not understanding the psychological harm that it causes kids of color to just live in predominantly white spaces on a day-to-day basis. There's actually a really fascinating study um, I'm forgetting his name, but it talks about how your brain, like the connective tissue in your brain is actually impacted there. I think they're called telomeres is actually impacted by being in PWIs. Like black kids brains are actually rewired and our, our mental capacity shrinks being in these PWIs because of the microaggressions that we experience on a daily basis. Y'all have to look this up. It's fascinating. Yes. So there is something really happening, right? So we have to name that. Schools and teachers have to name that. You need to name that like it it does matter when you are, and even if your school isn't a PWI, the world is run like a PWI. So mm-hmm. we're all experiencing this trauma. Um, so you have to be okay with like naming that and holding space for your students. I'm a big believer in like creating affinity groups. I'm a big be- believer in bringing in the community, bringing outside people in. If you're feeling like you're out of your depth with this and you still have your learning, that's okay you know, tap on your resources, find resources that can come and and support you in that work. So, but I think it's really important when these microaggressions, like, like in the moment, right when it happens, even if you don't know what to say, acknowledge it like, Hey, I heard you make this comment. It's not okay. 
I don't know what to say about that right now because that's how it usually happens, right? Like you right. hear you hear it, you're like, uh, <laughs> you don't even know how to. So usually, what I'll do is be like, I heard that, I see that. We're gonna come back to that, and then making sure that whoever's on the receiving end, like you, see them. Don't ignore it. I've seen so many teachers like we'll be in the the main corridor. They'll hear the N word. I see them hear it. They know I saw them hear it but they don't know what to say. So they just walk on by. And I'm like, even if you don't know what to say, because I know that can be uncomfortable as a white person. They're like, how do I handle this? Like, please help. Even if you don't want to say, just say like, Hey, I want to acknowledge that I heard that. And then holding space for the other folks who are impacted or whatever to be like, I see you. Right. I I like a humanizing moment. Like I, I hear, and it doesn't matter how that landed with you. It's not okay with me. Cause that's another thing that'll happen. You might hear microaggression and maybe the black or brown kids are like, no, it's okay. They have a, a inward card or no, it's all good. Right. You, They've got a pass. Say, We're all joking. Yes. They say, okay, well, it's not okay with me. Right. Don't let them do that. <laughs> Be like, then it's not, it's not okay with me. I don't, I'm not okay with that because that's not the kind of community that we're cultivating here. That's not the kind of space that this is. So make sure you name it, make sure that you, you know, you know how to address it. And it's really, really important to understand that like individual, individual things are happening, but you have to put it in the broader societal context. So even if in that individual case, like a kid was like, ah, it's okay. Right. You still want to connect it to the broader context. And my favorite way to handle microaggressions is just with learning. I had some kids that were like singing this song super loud. Um, One of the lyrics was like, what's my favorite word? B-I-T-C-H. And Mm -hmm. this was when I was in the day. And so I was like, okay, let's unpack that. Right. Like, let's what does it mean to be that? Like, how has that word been used? Let's talk about misogyny. Let's talk about misogynoir. Like, I just really leaned into that of like, if you understood the complex nature of what you were saying, because I know you and I see you and I love you and I want better for you. I know you wouldn't be saying it. So Mm -hmm. just leaning into that and remembering the number one thing is you're always planting seeds. That child might come back the next day and say the same thing. And you need to know you planted a seed, it's going to germinate, but we are not, we're not looking for a turnaround over overnight. So don't put that pressure on yourself as well. Well, because again, we're not looking for immediate compliance, right? You're looking for community building. You're looking for, I see you, you're a person and you're learning and I'm learning and it's community. Oh my gosh. I I needed to hear that as a mom of a four (laughs) and (laughs) three-year-old. Well, yeah. Child behavior is just really distilled down to like its absolute essence. But like adults do the same thing. We do the same things. We have to learn it over and over and over again before we really get it, depending, right? Depending on what the lesson is, it's just people being people. Yes. And that's all it is. We're just about out of time, which is really sad because I feel like we could talk to you forever. So we'll have to have you back, of course, right when everything gets better, right? This year. And it's all done. This school year is going to just be like a reset, like (laughs) fine. So we'll talk about how it all worked and it's all was fixed. No. Um, But speaking of like starting fresh, whether whether people are coming in at the start of the year or getting hired kind of frantically, um, a lot of new teachers come here to this podcast um, specifically to get support, whether it's curriculum or things like we're talking about today. In a few words, I mean, what is that advice other than what you've already shared, which is brilliant advice? Any advice for new teachers specifically as they're navigating this world of like, what schools expecting, whether or not that aligns with anti-racist, anti-bias teaching and what they're going to be evaluated on, like, right, like how they kind of decide who they're going to be as teachers. What do you say to new teachers, Deanna? Yeah, Um, I would say one thing to remember that like all of this AVAR and, and just the whole field, right, is really good teaching. Like when we boil it down, these are best practices that work for all students and they are backed up with a lot, a lot of data. So don't feel like, um, I know some teachers like, oh, I don't want to be the person that's always bringing up this or like, I feel like that's kind of like an add on. It's not an add on. These are just good teaching practices and they will work for your students regardless of wherever they come from because they're practices that see students as full, complex, beautiful humans, right? And not as like, 
cogs in a big machine. We're taking the system, we're like breaking down the way that they want us to teach, right? Which is very much like, I'm the teacher, I have the knowledge, I tell you your little banks to be filled. And we're like centering human beings and creating communities. So if you're worried about like the label, I don't know, people are like listening in Florida and they're worried about like what the label is and all of that. Just remember that it's just good teaching. Right. I would say like as soon as you get in there, you need to find your squad, find your allies. It can be so isolating. I've talked to lots of people who they're like, I'm that person in meetings and like I'm the only one that ever brings it up. And it's so frustrating. I don't want that for you. So I want you to find even if they're people outside of your school, in your district, who are those people that are like, yeah, they're your teacher friends. But like they're also your friends that you could be like, let's read this book together. Like, let's do this article together. Let's do this course together. So find those people that um, help feed you and help you feel like renewed and like you're not crazy because you will feel crazy on a lot like this every day. Right. Uh-huh. Every day we're people like I'm losing my mind. Uh-huh. Right? It's only me. It's only me. <laughs> right, it's only right. me. Yeah. <laughs> you see those people that are, that are like, no, girl, like we got you. It's not just you. And then I would say like really thinking about reflecting on your experience, on who you want to be, who you are, how you would like to learn. Like you need to be so well-grounded in that because you're going to be hit with all of these outside things that's going to, you know, really like in a lot of ways, strip a lot of the joy out of teaching. Like it just kind of becomes so mechanical um, and very like procedural. So I think connecting and like staying close to your why, like, why did you want to do this? What kind of teacher do you want to be? How do you want to remember it? How do you want to make your kids feel? How did you like to feel? Like what made you feel excited as a learner? All of that, like staying connected to that in the chaos of standardized test after standardized test is going to help you feel more grounded. So I, I would really sit with yourself a little bit and, and kind of like be your authentic teacher self so that that can carry into your, into your classroom. That's some kind of like, 30,000 feet advice. (laughs) But I mean, we talk all the time about our experiences as new teachers and, and the advice that we would also give to new educators, no matter what stage of life you're in, if you're just a new educator or you're renewing things. That foundation and coming back to why am I here? What is it that I want to do with this career or job? It's whatever way you look at it, it's a calling unlike any other out there. It is a calling of service. It is a calling of so many pieces of identity are wrapped up in our jobs when we're educators. And so, yeah, it's 30,000 feet, but it's also very, again, humanizing of like, it's okay to care so much. It's yeah. I'd, I'd like my, I'd like my own kids, my babies to be in classrooms with people who care that deeply and who care deeply enough to like humbleize, humbleize, humble themselves. Oh no. Humble themselves to do like reflective work. (laughs) Yeah. That's what we want. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to cry thinking about my kids going to school. Okay. But it, but Maria, I I feel that way too. And and I think this is, this is what you're going to feel as, as a new teacher and even teachers who have been there for a while. It's too much. It's so overwhelming. There's so much stuff. So finding a place for your quiet to come back to your center, mm-hmm. what matters to you and, and remembering that you have a choice of where to put your energy and that we can be scrambling and racing at, to fulfill all of the ancillary ridiculousness, or we can come back to center. Remember why we're here. Remember that we have other people's babies and that the work that matters to us takes, takes space, takes yeah. time. And that sometimes the other to-do list things are going to have to just stay on the to-do list a little bit longer. And, and it's okay to find your space and find your groove. And, you know, we're, we're, we're here for so many reasons and your balance, your mental health, your vision, like all of that kind of intangible is just as important as the lesson plan you're putting in front of students. And we need to make space for that. Yes. And then my, my really practical tip is no content for the first like two weeks. Yeah. Build the community. Like, Build it. don't, don't you dare. Don't, don't. It's so tempting with that pacing guide. I know, but don't do it. You have to, you'll thank yourself. And I've never met a teacher that was like, I spent too much time relationship building. I've mm-hmm. met many, many teachers that were like, man, I should not have jumped into it in the first week because by October, it all falls apart. Well, and from like a really pragmatic standpoint, if all of that is in place and you've been building and cultivating and continuing to foster a tight-knit community within your classroom, yeah. guess what's really easy to do? Teach yes. content. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
community up, if you have a community of learners, they will learn. Hear me out. Like, right. frustrating for a lot of people. The kids aren't learning, but maybe they will. Like, they'll start learning things. It'll be great. Yeah. Like, promise. It's like tried yeah. and true. It super works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Deanna, will you tell people where they can find you, where they can get you to come and work with their school, where they can just follow along? I love watching your Instagram stories and just like getting these doses of inspiration and understanding from you specifically, where can they find you? Of course. So my Instagram is just my name, Deanna, D-E-O-N-N-A Smith. Um, and that's where I post reels, Instagram stories, lots of content there. For working with schools, you can find me at DeannaSmithConsulting.com, very direct. And that is just, it gives you a little bit about like what I do more in depth, my um, former partners that I've worked with in the past. So all of that good stuff. And then I do have, um, you can learn more about like my specific courses. So I do have a course on anti-racist behavior management specifically. That's great for K-12. And that is, you can get info on my, on my website or my Instagram. And I also have another course called the Anti-Racist Institute, which is like really meant for teachers who are like, give me all of it, like behavior, instruction, (laughs) bringing in families. And it's designed to be like a six week, but you could binge it and like do it all at once or you can chop it up. It's up to you. But that's just like really meant to like give you it's like a mini course. Like I designed it basically how I design when I do college courses. Like that's Mm -hmm. what it is. It's a small version of that. So that is called RE, the Anti-Racist Institute. And both of those you can find more information um, about on my Instagram or on my website, DeannaSmithConsulting.com. And then you can also like if you have a question or you want to know more about something in particular, you can send me a DM or an email. And if you go to um, my Instagram, you can see all the information for how to like get me on email too. And we will have links to all of this in our show notes. So make sure, yeah, if, you, if you're if you driving to work right now and you did not get all of that down, don't worry. Go to the show notes for this episode and we will have all of Deanna's links right there so you can get your daily dose as well of the amazingness that is Dr. Smith. Oh, official. So official. When was that official? May? May, yes. All I'm right. School after, you know, like how many years, like 18 years of school. I'm finally done. That's what you say now. But then there's something addicting about degrees. You just keep getting them, don't you? Right? Accumulating them. Yeah. Yeah. I, they like, well, I mean, I stopped for a little while here, but like, I feel like you just, I don't know. And it's also because we're like education nerds that we're yes. like, and another yeah. one. And hey, what about that certificate? Sure. I'm halfway there. Yeah. That one too. I could totally teach PE now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good segue, Marie. Thank you. I do what I can. Deanna, thank you so, so, so much for spending your time with us today and chatting and just like sharing your genius and your expertise and like such a great insight. Thank you. We appreciate thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited. Y'all reached out. I love doing podcasts. So thank you so much. Oh, good. Well, we'll I certainly have you back. Yes. Yeah. We'd love to. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, we will uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to Brave New Teaching. We'd love to keep the conversation going over on Instagram. And while you're there, check out the links in our bio for the most up-to-date events going on in the Brave New Teaching community. Thanks for being here and have a great week at school. 